It is my distinct pleasure to welcome to the pulpit this morning Dan Kuyper. Dan has been with us many, many times before. We were just reminiscing over the fact that uh, Dan's kind of been helping out with us from the very beginning, back when this had gone from a tire shop to a worship center. And we're excited to have him with us again this morning. Um, Let's give Dan a warm welcome. Oh, it is so good to be back. I always enjoy my time here at, at Hope Community. There's so much to love about this church, and one of the things that really stands out to me is you are one of the only churches I know of that doesn't put their drummer in a cage. That is such a beauty, and we're talking about being free indeed this morning, so that's just a symbolic thing. <laughs> that's pretty. I remember I was at a conference once, a pastor's conference, and the worship team had just finished their set, and Ken Davis, Christian comedian, came up, and he was, he was doing his talk, and he stepped back and accidentally bumped into the drummer's shield, and he turned around, and he knocked on, and he said, bulletproof, you must have been expecting Baptists. <laughs> Protect the drummer! Uh, Now, I know it is written somewhere that preachers have to have three points to a sermon, but today I have just one. One truth that I want to share with you, but it is a truth that has the power to change your life forever. A truth that if fully embraced in the depth of your soul will without a doubt give you the peace, the joy, the freedom that we all long for in our lives. And here it is, only four words, but a profound truth that will set you free. In fact, say it with me. The grave was empty. The grave was empty. Just a few days ago was Good Friday, a day commemorating the crucifixion of our Jesus. But had the story ended with the cross... There would be no peace, no joy, no freedom in our lives today. But because our Jesus, when it looked like all hope was gone, rose victorious over sin and death and hell, we also, as we've already sung this morning, have freedom over sin and death and hell. And that, my friends, is something we should celebrate not just on Easter Sunday, but every day. Here is Luke's account of that glorious morning from Luke 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. My friends, the grave was empty. That is the central truth to Christianity. A truth that gives us freedom from the shackles of sin and shame and anything the enemy would use to hold us captive. A truth 
that gives us freedom that whether people want to admit it or not, this world is desperate for. But let's face it. We live in a world where truth is hard to find. We live in a world that has turned its back on Jesus. We live in a world where truth is not absolute, but relative, where there is your truth and my truth, and our truth is whatever we decide. We live in a world where people who believe in God's truth are openly mocked, even persecuted, despite overwhelming evidence that God's word is true. Now, I would imagine that most of us here grew up in the church. We learned God's truth as children, and we hung around with other people who learned God's truth as children. But if we are going to share that truth, share that truth with the world as God commanded, we need to understand the world. We need to understand that this world is very skeptical when it comes to God and his people. Some question basic things that we have just always believed. So they ask, well, did Jesus really exist? Did he really die on a cross? Did he really, three days later, rise from the dead? So let's dig into that a bit. The truth is, even the most cynical, unbelieving historians agree that a man named Jesus did, in fact, live on this earth. That he did, in fact, die on a Roman cross on a Friday. And that he was, in fact, buried in a tomb. And that that tomb was, in fact, empty on Sunday morning. So how do unbelievers reconcile their unbelief with an empty grave? Well, some contend that Jesus stole the body of Jesus and then made up a story that he rose from the dead. But that discounts the hundreds of people who testified to seeing Jesus alive with their very eyes. A truth not only reported in the Bible, I should add, but has been corroborated in many other books that were written at that time. And it is clear from recorded testimony of these witnesses that Jesus didn't just pop in and out after he died. He spent time with people. He ate with people. He even touched people. And yet unbelievers still don't believe. They discount all the eyewitness testimony and say the disciples just stole the body. But something else to consider about this disciples stealing the body theory. I mean, think about it. If the disciples stole the body, it was obvious that Jesus was in fact still dead. And if Jesus was still dead, that means there was no resurrection and if the disciples knew there was no resurrection, that Jesus was in fact dead, why were they so willing to endure persecution and most of them eventually being killed in horrifying ways? Why would they endure such torment for something they knew was a lie? Now the Bible doesn't give us all the details about the disciples' demise. But according to historians, according to tradition, let's take a look at what happened to Jesus' disciples. 
Bartholomew was cruelly beaten and crucified. Thomas, stabbed to death with spears. James, killed by the sword. James, son of Alphaeus, stoned to death. Philip was murdered. Andrew was crucified. Matthew was killed with a sharp spike fastened to an axe blade. According to historians, John was the only one of Jesus' 12 disciples to die a natural death, but that was only after he had been immersed in a barrel of boiling oil. Now, some early church writers say that Peter, Peter was killed by crucifixion, and making that even more horrific was the fact that he insisted he be hung upside down on the cross because he didn't want to die the same way that his Jesus died. Yet, unbelievers say the disciples stole the body. They made up the story that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, just imagine the disciples planning that cover-up. So Matthew said, okay, guys, here's the plan. We're going to steal Jesus' body. We're going to tell everyone that he rose again, right? Now, people are going to say it's disinformation. Facebook is going to fact-check us. But we can't back down. We've got to stick to the plan, okay? Then Peter says, yeah, but what's in it for us? And Matthew said, what's in it for us? Well, people are going to falsely accuse us. They're going to mock us. They're going to beat us to a bloody pulp. They're going to throw us into prison. Our reputation is going to be shot. Our families will be in jeopardy. We're never going to be able to get a job. And eventually, we're going to be either speared, stoned, or crucified upside down. Wow, where do I sign up, right? Friends, make no mistake about it. The disciples were perfectly willing to die horrible deaths because they knew the truth. The grave was empty because Jesus had come back to life. Now, other historians through the years have speculated that the Romans stole the body, that, that they took the body because they knew the disciples were going to do it, and then they would just tell everyone that he rose again. But that Roman stealing the body theory doesn't hold any water either. I mean, if the Romans stole the body so the disciples wouldn't, they undoubtedly would have then put it on display for everyone to see. I mean, what better way to dispute the disciples' claims that Jesus was alive than by showing everyone a dead body? So that theory doesn't wash. And then there are some unbelievers who have adopted what is called the swoon theory. And I actually just saw this uh, promoted on Facebook as truth two weeks ago. The belief that the tomb was empty because Jesus wasn't actually dead when he was placed in it. You see, he was unconscious, but he was still alive, and, and being in that cool, dark tomb somehow revived him. Well, that theory is preposterous for many reasons, not the least of which was the Romans were really good at killing people. It was common practice for them, after a person had been crucified, to pierce the victim's side with a sword. And if blood and water flowed out of the body, it was the undisputable sign of death because blood and water showed that the red and white blood corpuscles had separated something that only happens after circulation stops. What does the Bible say happened after Jesus said, it is finished? John 19, 34 
One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Think about it. To believe the swoon theory, one has to believe that after all he endured up to and during the crucifixion, after all the beatings, the scourgings, the blood loss, a sword thrust in his side, Jesus, with no medical intervention, just three days of recovery, stood up in the tomb, moved the stone away from the opening by himself, a stone that archaeologists believe weighed anywhere between one and two tons, then single-handedly overpowered the armed guards and walked away. I don't know about you. I could never be an atheist. I don't have that much faith. Yet there are many in our world who have rejected God's truth, who have chosen not to believe the events of Resurrection Sunday, who deny the empty grave. Some go as so far as to deny the very existence of God. And can we just be honest about why that really is? You see, if a person were to believe that God's word is true, that means that they will be held accountable for their sinful lifestyles. And unbelievers, by and large, don't want anyone telling them what they can and cannot do. I mean... Let's call it what it is. In many cases, it's not that people reject the empty grave for lack of evidence. They reject the empty grave for lack of morals. They reject the empty grave because they believe that freedom is being able to do whatever you want, wherever you want, with whomever you want, however you want. Yet God's word says that is the polar opposite of freedom. That is what the Bible refers to as being a slave to sin. Friends, freedom belongs to those of us who know that Jesus paid the price for our sins on the cross and that he rose victorious over sin and death and hell. Freedom belongs to those who know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the grave was empty. Because Jesus was alive. Listen to these words spoken by Jesus to believers found in John 8. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth. And the truth will what? Set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now that last verse is one of the most inspirational phrases in all of Scripture. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Those of us who have experienced salvation in Christ, the one and only source of truth, are no longer slaves. We are truly free. Now check out this text from Romans 6. 
Since we have been united with him in death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Now, wait a minute. If we are free from the power of sin, then why do we still sin? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's because even though Christ died to save us from our sin, we are still fallen human beings. Salvation in Christ frees us from the power that sin once had over us. You see, when we are slaves to sin, we serve it willingly. The Bible tells us that when we are slaves to sin, it is impossible to please God. But when we surrender our lives to Christ, we become God's sons and daughters. And just as sons and daughters disobey their parents as they grow, sometimes even willfully, God's children sometimes disobey him. I have a friend with a three-year-old son who came home from work one day and his wife met him at the door and just handed him the child. Now, this is never a good sign, guys. Just that this kid is going to drive me crazy. He's been ornery all day. I'm trying to do some baking. He's hiding my cooking utensils. I found some of them in the garbage. I told him that he had to have a time out in the living room. He took his crayons, wrote all over the wall. He dumped the cat's litter box all over the floor. So to protect his son's life, his dad took care of him the rest of the night. And as dad was putting him to bed, he said, Noah, today has been a rough day. We need to pray that tomorrow will be different. And Noah looked up and said, nah, tomorrow's going to be rough too. <laughs> now, now we laugh but how often don't we act the same way? We've been freed from the power of sin by Jesus' death and resurrection, and yet we willfully sin. You know, I mentioned that the truth we're focusing on this morning is that we experience freedom because the grave was empty. But to fully comprehend the power of that truth, we have to understand something. We have an enemy who doesn't want us to experience the freedom of the empty grave. An enemy who will do whatever he can to prevent that from happening. And as a result, there are many fully loved, fully forgiven believers, perhaps even some of you here this morning, who because of our sinful nature are not living the kind of lives that God longs for us, and as a result, we're not fully experiencing that freedom that was won for us on Resurrection Sunday. Now, there are all kinds of things the enemy uses to hold us down and to keep us from being free indeed, but this morning I want to briefly look at three common things that the enemy uses to hold us captive and, and keep us from being fully free in Christ. And I'll warn you, uh, some of us super responsible, task-oriented, idle hands of the devil's workshop folks are not going to like this first one. Uh, 
but there, there are many well-intentioned believers who are not experiencing the freedom that God longs for us to experience because of busyness. Busyness. Because we work too much. Workaholism is epidemic in our country. And we men especially wear busyness like a badge of honor. We brag about how many hours we work. We're, we're prideful about all we do to provide for our family. And yet, we're not providing our spouse and kids what they need the most. I staff men's retreats called Battle Cry. We've got another one coming up in South Bend this, this coming weekend. And I can't tell you how many men have said, yeah, my dad was physically present but he was emotionally absent. I can't tell you how many men come to the weekend saying they need balance in their lives. And what they're really saying is, they're, they're too busy. Busyness, my friends, even if we're doing good and noble things, can have an adverse effect on every aspect of our lives. I mean, we work, we work, we work, and then we go to church, and we work and work and work some more. We fall into bed every night physically, mentally, emotionally spent. Even our spiritual lives are affected. We're so busy doing things for God that we take no time to spend with God. Does that sound like freedom? Corey ten Boom had an interesting take on this. She said, if the devil can't make us bad, he'll make us busy. Friends, we will never experience the true freedom that God wants us to have when we are enslaved to our to-do lists. So the enemy uses busyness to keep believers from experiencing the true freedom of the empty grave. Now, perhaps being too busy is not an issue for you. Maybe you're missing out on the freedom of Christ because you are carrying the burden of shame, something I see a lot of in my work. People who are so fixated on yesterday that we're not living a full life today. Author Michael McMillan said, you can't start the next chapter of your life if you keep rereading the last one. I compare it to, to driving a car down the highway without ever taking your eyes off the rearview mirror. That's not very wise, is it? You're not going to get very far, are you? And yet that is how many of us are choosing to go through life, totally fixated on what happened back there beating ourselves up, carrying enormous burdens over our failures, regrets, sometimes over things that happened years ago, either things we did or things that were done to us that continue to weigh heavy on us. Does that sound like freedom? Friends, we cannot experience true freedom. We cannot experience the beauty of the present and the promise of the future if we choose to live in the past. There is a reason the rearview mirror is this big and the windshield is this big. We're to live in the present. We're to look forward to the future, but we've got to keep the past behind us. Now, the truth is we are all affected 
by our past. But there's a big difference between being affected by our past and being defined by it. And being defined by our past is commonly known as a victim mindset. And boy, are we seeing a lot of that in our world today. People going through life saying, poor me, look what happened to me, I am so oppressed. Some people play that victim role so well they should carry their own body chalk, for heaven's sake. Now please hear me. I'm not minimizing the painful things that may have happened in our past, but being a victim is a choice. It is a choice. None of us can control the bad things that happen to us, but we all can control how we respond to those things. And I'm here to tell you, no matter how painful our past may have been, we serve a God of hope. And that same power that enabled Jesus to rise from the grave can help us to overcome a hurtful past. The empty grave gives us freedom. And yet so many choose to be held captive by the shame of our past. And something we need to point out, in our culture, we often use the words shame and guilt interchangeably, but they're very, very different. You see, guilt has to do with our behavior. Shame has to do with our character. Guilt tells us what we've done is bad. Shame tells us we are bad. You see the difference? Shame is so much deeper than guilt or embarrassment over things we've done or things that were done to us. We should feel guilty when we sin. That's why God gave us a conscience. But we are not meant to walk through the rest of our lives carrying shame. See, shame is the voice of the enemy saying, you're defective, you're flawed, you're unworthy. You are irredeemable. You are beyond hope. And if that voice is all too familiar to you, you can know without, with, with absolute certainty that is not the voice of our God. You know, when he walked this earth, Jesus encountered all kinds of people who did some pretty despicable things, people who were blatant sinners, and never once did he use shame as a motivator to change their wrongful behavior. Never. In fact, he had some pretty harsh words for those who did. So what, Jesus, what did Jesus do when he encountered those folks? Jesus met People in the depth of their sin, and he loved them. He loved them. And my friends, he does the same with you and me. Jesus gives us the opposite of shame. Jesus gives us honor, respect, a sense of belonging, forgiveness, worthiness. Jesus enables us to overcome our shame so that we can walk in freedom. You know, we need to understand Jesus not only took our sins to the cross, he took our shame there. We're not meant to carry that around with us. The empty grave gives us freedom over shame. You know, the the Bible gives us dozens of different names for God, and each one of us, each one of them tells us something about his character. I mean, the Bible calls God creator, savior, 
Redeemer, Shepherd, Wonderful Counselor, Friend of Sinners, all tell us something about God's character. But David in Psalm 3 uses a very interesting name for God. He calls him the lifter of our head. Friends, that has to do with shame. If we're going through life with our head hanging low because of things in our life that we are ashamed of, Jesus gently takes our chin in his hands and says, No, you can hold your head up high. You're my child. I paid a very high price for you. I died and rose again to save you, to free you from the burden of shame. Others may condemn you for things that you've done. You may condemn yourself, but with me there is no condemnation. None. No matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've done it. You have been set free from the bondage of sin. You are not defined by what you've done. You're defined by who you are. And you know who you are? You are a child of the king. You're a child of the king. So the empty grave frees us from our burdens. The burden of busyness. The burden of shame. But here's a third powerful weapon that the enemy uses to keep us in chains. And that is unforgiveness. And in my ministry, I see so many believers carrying this burden. And we can be held captive by unforgiveness in three different ways. The first way is by not forgiving others. Genuine, godly forgiveness when people have wronged us is necessary for us to experience the freedom that God intends for us to have. And God makes it very clear in his word. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. But a common sticking point, even for us Christians, is that forgiving others for hurting us feels like we're giving the offender a pass. So we hold on to the offense. But can I ask you something? What happens to a person when they just can't let go of what someone did or said to them? They can't let it go. I mean, it affects them to the point where many times they are consumed by what that other person did to them. They can't eat. They can't sleep. They're always on edge. They may experience headaches, migraines, stomach problems, even depression. Does that sound like freedom? And to make matters worse, the offender sleeping like a baby. What's wrong with this picture? So here's the deal, my friends. We don't forgive because the other person deserves it. We forgive because we do. God doesn't want us walking with that burden. Nothing is as exhausting as carrying a grudge. So God offers to take that burden from us and set us free. Now here's the thing. It's a lot easier for us to forgive someone who admits that they hurt us, right? If they say, I'm sorry I hurt you, will you please forgive me? That's a little easier 
than those people who will never admit that they hurt us and they'd do it again tomorrow if they had the chance. So when that happens, does that mean now forgiveness can't take place? No, forgiveness still has to happen. It's just now it is no longer a transaction between you and the offender. It's a transaction between you and your God. In those situations, we must ask God to free us, to give us the strength to let it go. And again, forgiving others is not giving them a pass. It's not denying that their words and actions hurt us. Forgiveness doesn't mean we're excusing their behavior. It means we're choosing not to be held captive by it any longer. Carrying a grudge will never make you a stronger person, but forgiveness will. And when it comes to experiencing fully the freedom of our Heavenly Father, forgiveness is not optional. We cannot expect to receive His forgiveness if we refuse to forgive those who hurt us. Another way we can be held in bondage by unforgiveness is not asking others to forgive us when we hurt them. You know, we don't like to admit it when we're wrong, do we? But if we want others to admit their wrongdoing to us, we need to admit our wrongdoing to them. And when I speak to dad's groups, I tell them, as important as it is to say those three little words to your children often, I love you, it is maybe even more important for you to say those two little words, I'm sorry, when you mess up. I have had men tell me I have never heard my father say I'm sorry. My dad never admitted his mistakes. Well, when a dad is wrong and everybody knows he's wrong, even he knows he's wrong, but he never admits it, what message does that send to his kids? Friends, that doesn't show strength. That shows a lack of integrity. But when a dad messes up and owns it and asks forgiveness, he models to his children and others what God honoring repentance and forgiveness looks like. A few years ago, I, I went on a health plan, dropped like, I don't know, 45 pounds in 10 weeks, something like that. And part of that was giving up pop. And I found this drink at Costco, zero calories, zero sugar. So that's what I started drinking. Well, my wife and I went to a movie, and I took one of the drinks with me so I wouldn't be tempted to buy pop inside, walk all the way into the theater and realize I left it in the car. So now I'm already in a bad mood, so I go all the way back, get the pop, come back in, and the guy says, you can't come in here with that. What do you mean I can't come here? Well, you're not allowed to bring in any outside. I said, I can't have pop. Dude, it's for my health. I can't. I can't drink pop. This is what... I'm sorry, you can't bring any... I want to talk to your manager. Yeah, Mr. Model to Christian Fathers has a hissy fit. My wife actually just walked away at that point. She just went into the theater. And I'm wanting to talk to the manager. And I'm saying, I'm taking my business elsewhere. I'm never coming back to AMC again. I mean, and I'm just in a huff. 
bring him back outside and come back in. I go and I sit next to my wife and I look down and I'm wearing a compassion t-shirt. <laughs> I don't even remember what movie we saw because my mind was elsewhere. I knew what I needed to do. And when the movie was over, the guy wasn't there. It just ate on me for three weeks. And we went back, and I saw the guy. He's probably 16 years old. I saw the guy. We went past. He didn't recognize me. I didn't say anything. We went and sat down. I just said to my wife, I'll be right back. And I went up out in the lobby, and I went up to the guy, and I said, hey, I don't know if you remember or not, but about three weeks ago, I tried to bring in a, and he's, and, and you stopped me, and I just want you to know I'm sorry. And he said, oh, don't worry about it. People try to do that all the time. I said, no, I want you to hear what I'm saying. You were doing your job. I was being a jerk. I never should have treated you that way. I am sorry. Will you forgive me? This is a 16-year-old African-American guy. I thought he was going to hug me. I mean, he may have never heard a grown man admit he was wrong before. And we actually did hug. And I walked away feeling free. I did what I needed to do. But God also convicted me in those three weeks to take a look at what was underneath that behavior. Because the underlying issue many times when we hurt other people is something that the Bible refers to as a sin that God doesn't just dislike, he detests. When we hold on to grudges or when we're afraid to admit we're wrong, there's an underlying sin and it's called pride. Friends, we will never experience the freedom of Christ if our pattern is to pridefully cover up our mistakes and never admit it when we're wrong. That not only hurts those we've offended, it hurts us. So yeah, we've got to forgive others who hurt us. We've also got to ask forgiveness when we hurt others. But to fully experience the freedom we were meant to experience, we must also learn how to forgive ourselves. Have you ever thought that God couldn't possibly forgive you for what you've done? Or maybe that because you do the same stupid thing over and over and over again, that God's grace just must have run out for you? If so, I want you to listen to these very straightforward words from 1 John 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, he forgives. Now there's no little asterisk leading to a footnote in the Bible that says, unless you're divorced. Or unless you're an alcoholic or you know, do drugs. Or unless you're involved in sexual sin, because we all know that's much worse than other sin. No. If we confess, he forgives, doesn't matter what we've done, doesn't matter how many times we've done it. And the instant 
we ask forgiveness, we're forgiven. We are fully forgiven, fully accepted. We fully experience the freedom that was won for us by the empty grave. And getting back to what the world believes, make no mistake about it, it is faith in the living Jesus that sets us free. In fact, he is the only way to the freedom we long for. And I know that's not a politically correct thing to say in our world today because our world tells us there's many ways to peace and freedom. Let me say it again. Jesus is the only way to the freedom we long for. There is no other way. You know, look at who people are putting their trust in. Christians believe in Christ. Mormons follow Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. The Nation of Islam puts their trust in Muhammad. Seventh-day Adventists in Esther G. White. Others have put their trust in leaders like Confucius and Buddha and Zeus. But I want you to think about something. Every one of the people I just mentioned died. All but one of them are still dead. Millions of people in this world are putting their hope and trust in dead people. But as Christians, our hope, our trust is in Jesus Christ who is no longer dead. In fact, he is very much alive. He has risen from the grave. He has conquered sin and death and hell. He has paid the debt in full that we owe. He has promised eternal life to all who believe. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one, no one comes to the Father except through Him. The truth of the empty grave, He was set free so we could be set free. If the Son sets us free, we are free indeed. Some time ago, I heard for the first time a story you may be familiar with. It's a story of a boy named Philip. Philip was eight years old. He was in a Sunday school class with nine other children, but Philip was different from the other children. You see, Philip had Down's syndrome. And because Philip didn't look like them or act like them, he was made to feel different, even teased and bullied by the other kids. Well, on Easter Sunday, the teacher gave empty plastic eggs to each child with the instruction to go outside of the building and put into the egg something that would remind them of the meaning of Easter. And then they were to come in with their eggs and share with the class why they put inside the egg what they did. Well, when the kids all came in, they were all excited to hear what other people had put in their egg. And the first egg was opened, and in it was a little twig. And the student said, I put that twig in there because that reminded me of the wooden cross. Well, another student put in a flower and another a butterfly, each of them explaining that that represented to them new life. But when the teacher opened the last egg, it was empty. And the kids immediately started laughing. Who didn't get it right? Who's the stupid one? They chided. And the mocking continued until Philip, 
who was now near tears, finally blurted out, that's my egg. Kids laughed even harder. Philip, you are so dumb. The teacher asked, Philip, didn't you understand what you were supposed to do? If you didn't understand, you should have asked me. Well, Philip now began crying, and he insisted, I did, I did understand. One of the kids said, so why didn't you put anything in your egg? Philip said, because the grave was empty. The room fell silent. Philip, the special needs boy, had the most meaningful response of all to the teacher's assignment. And from that day on, Philip was included by the other kids. He was part of the group. It's as if that day God set him free from the tomb of differentness. Just a few months later, at the end of summer, Philip passed away. His family had known since the time he was born that there were things wrong with his body and that he wouldn't live a full lifespan. And at his memorial service, Philip's life was celebrated by those who knew him. But his parents had no idea just how special their little boy was until the end of the service. When nine, eight-year-old children, along with a Sunday school teacher, marched up to the front of the church and placed in Philip's casket ten empty plastic eggs, remembering the greatest truth anyone could ever have shared with them, shared by an eight-year-old special needs classmate. The grave was empty. That is the central truth of the Christian faith. A truth that gives us freedom from the shackles of sin, shame, anything the enemy would use to hold us captive. And if the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. Let's pray. Hallelujah, what a Savior. We are so grateful, God, that you sent your Son not just to die that painful death on the cross to save us from our sins, but a Son who then rose victorious over sin and death and hell, which allows us to experience your wondrous freedom today. Father, may each of us here this morning Walk in that newness of life. May we leave here experiencing the depth of your freedom like never before. And we offer this prayer in the mighty name of our Jesus. Amen.